we're just going to go through the book of Revelation. You're going to be disappointed if you think this is all about timelines and when things are going to happen and things like that. This is about the nature of spiritual opposition, the nature of the church, how we as believers should um, handle um, problems, trials, difficulties, and the way that it's, it's the, the, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. It's called the apocalypto. It's the unveiling. So the, the name of the book of Revelation does two things. One, it's not a veiling. Um, we, we know all about veils. It's sort of um, the mask that we wear um, from time to time. Does it. It's not like, you know, you usually put a mask on and it's like, you're somebody else, but this acts more like a veil. It's more of a, a covering that's um, used to to separate at times, you know, for good reasons. I mean, there was, so we've worn these veils, but Revelation is the unveiling of Jesus Christ, and it also points to um, uh, apocalypto literature. So literature of this particular genre has symbols and all this kind of crazy dragons and beasts and this sort of thing that you'll see. So a lot of people look at this and they're like, they do a couple things. One is um, I can do, I can go anywhere I want to with this. You know, I can make, I can make symbols mean anything I want to mean. So the question is the person that came up with a symbol, what did that person intend to symbolize? So the question that we want to have is not what do, can you figure out about the symbols, what do you think these mean, but there has to be some key to the Bible to be able to say what do these things mean. And the key is the Bible itself, as is with the rest of the scripture. We allow the scripture to be its own interpretation. So John, the one to whom the revelation came and through the Holy Spirit would have desired for those who read it to go to their Old Testament and read through that to see how are these things used there. Now he does another thing here in these seven letters at the beginning of the book of Revelation. There's these seven letters to seven churches and we've seen the number seven means a completeness. Um, in six days the Lord created everything and rested on the seventh day so it's a day of completeness that continues on. So these letters are meant for all the churches but they were written to specific churches and so it does help to take into account if you were in that city to whom that in that church to whom that letter was written um, there's things in this letter that are particular to the culture and to that city so it helps us with the understanding of what did these things mean and the seven letters are some of the more um, straightforward parts of the book of revelation but the rest of revelation is sort of saying these seven letters for the churches to which is um, addressed to us as well, we're going to pull back and look more intently at what's going on behind the scenes spiritually. So the first one we looked at was Ephesus. That was in the, the first letter had gone to them, and they had doctrinal zeal. They had lost love for the gospel, though, that they had lost love for the people, and they, were, they made sure they had everything right theologically, but they had forgotten to go out and share the gospel with people. They had forgotten to love other people, and it had caused lots of problems. They were called to repent, and if they would, that they would eat from the tree of life. And so each of the letters you're going to see, there's a symbol of Jesus that starts off. They'll say, this is something you're doing good, and for some of the churches, the next church, Smyrna, they didn't have anything bad they had done, but they were about to go through persecution. And so they were told in that letter that there's going to be tribulation and there's going to be coming persecution, but they were called to be faithful unto death. 
as a witness to the world, and if they were, they would receive the crown of life. And so this is another view of heaven. So you have, um, you eat from the tree of life, Smyrna, they're told, um, you'll have the crown of life, and now the next one is in Pergamum. All these seven churches are in the same area of Asia, now called Turkey. Um, this is the third one, so we're traveling north yet, so the next turn's going to go which direction is that? East, and they're going to circle around. Um, so it's a circular letter to all these churches. So let's look at where this letter begins in um, Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. And before we go to the word of the Lord, let's go to the Lord of his word. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it comes to us without error, that for those who have your spirit, it's living and active. And we pray that you would um, change us even by what we hear today. You've promised that your word will not return void, that it will accomplish what you seek for it to accomplish. As the Puritan writers have said, um, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. So we would pray that your word today would bring faith, increase faith, and that we would be changed by what we hear. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation 12, beginning in verse, I'm sorry, Revelation 2, beginning in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the, son of the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. The word of the Lord. So Pergamum is it's one of the major cities at the time in, in what's called Asia Minor, and it was a major city of worshiping many gods. There were three temples all for the Caesar. So if you wanted to worship Caesar, uh, one of the sayings was um, Kaiser et Deus, I believe. Caesar is God. Um, you would go and you would worship the Caesar, the king, the ruler from Rome. You would go to Pergamum and they had these beautiful temples where you could go to worship. And everywhere you went in Pergamum, there was, there was worship. But it wasn't a godly worship, it was a pagan worship. They were worshiping many different deities, and we know behind these deities are demonic forces. But they would go um, everywhere. If you wanted to work, you had to worship Caesar. If you wanted to participate in um, cultural events or activities, you had to worship one or more of these other gods or goddesses, or you just weren't accepted into um, these places. So it was very difficult for Christians once they have converted to Christianity and they have the, the one God to be able to say, wait a minute, Caesar's not God. Caesar's not, I can't say Caesar's Lord. I can't offer the pinch of incense. I'm just, I just can't do it. And so they were immediately labeled um, as um, anti-state. Um, they were not patriotic. They were troublemakers. And we see here that Antipas 
who was probably a bishop of the church at the time, um, was even put to death. And if you look historically, um, the way people were put to death in Pergamon is pretty horrific. So um, the Romans and the people of that day were pretty good at making a statement as far as how they put people to death in order to stop the behavior that, um, that they see happening that they wanted to put an end to. There was a major temple for the worship of Zeus. He called himself the king of kings. He was the king of gods. And so there was a huge um, throne there. And some people think, well, when this talks about the, I know Satan's throne is there, they think, well, that's what he's talking about. And I think that may be a small part of it. I even read somewhere that um, during, um, before the Nazis came into power in Germany, they took that throne from Pergamum and they uh, were... Uh, they collected lots of things like this and brought it to Germany. And so that, that actually sat in Germany, and it was around that time or not long after that Hitler rises to power. And so we continue to see forces behind um, forces of power. So we have to be careful where we, who we give power to, where we believe our power rests. There was also uh, the goddess of pleasure, Dionysus. Uh, Dion, how do you say that? Dionysius. She was the goddess of pleasure and of carousing and revelry and things. So people liked to go there a lot. There was also especially Asclepius. He was the god of healing. Now if you've ever seen the, the symbol they use, the, the staff of Asclepius as the, the um, snake that's wrapped around that you see it on ambulances sometimes. It's a symbol for, for medical um, people at times. But that's the staff of Asclepius. And what they would do in the temple is, if you had a, if you had a health problem, and one of the sources I had said, uh, the sign above it said, death is not allowed here. And what they meant was, if you had something that was leading you to death, you couldn't go in there. So if you had a disease or something and you, were, you thought you were going to die, no. This was only for people who maybe could be healed of different diseases. But you would go in, they would have you drink something, it would knock you out which you'll see why in a second that had to happen, and you just lay around inside the temple, and there was tons of snakes in there. I don't know, literally tons, but you know, more than one, and that's a ton to me. And they were non-poisonous, and they are crawling around, and the idea was if one of the snakes crawled across you, that you would you'd be healed. And I'm thinking, yeah, I'd be up and out. <laughs> I'm good, you know, but they're, they're knocked out. So, but the, the, what would happen is the, 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 the power behind, I guess it was Asclepius, would speak through the serpent to the person in their dreams, tell them what was wrong with them, and then they would let the doctors know, and the doctors would prescribe treatment based on what they learned while they were in this temple. So that's kind of, of how that was working. So you'd see Asclepius um, symbols all over the city too. But I don't believe that's why... The Bible here says that this is Satan's throne and where Satan dwells. I, I think it has to do with what happened particularly to, to Antipas. And so when you see the lengths at which the culture and the government has gone to actually putting a church leader to death, then there's spiritual powers behind that. And what the book of Revelation says, he says, this is Satan's throne. And what that means is we see that as a, as a power uh, it's a chair, and it, it, it's, it is where the seat of power is, but it can also just mean this is where you're at home. Like Satan's just at home in Pergamum, everywhere you went. So if you were, if you were a demon, you were Satan, and you're just, you're just looking to have false worship, you're looking to throw people into chaos and disorder and have people worship you instead of the one true God, uh, Pergamum is one of the places to be. And so Satan would feel at home in Pergamum. 
So imagine that's where your church is. And so there, and imagine that your church there as its leader, Antipas, and everybody would have known who this is. They'd probably been friends with him, and they would have prayed together, sung together, and all these things. But because of his faith, he was taken and he was killed. And that's called, issued by Caesar, the power of the sword. Some believe he was literally killed by the sword. Some believe there are other methods that were designed, I won't get into now, um, about how he was killed, but it would have been something that, that would have been horrific, and it would have caused many believers to say, you know what, that's fine, I'm done. Sorry about this whole Christian thing. I, I don't want to put my life at risk. But this church didn't do that. This church stood firm. They did not deny the name of Christ. Whatever they thought would happen by putting Antipas to death didn't happen to this church. This church stood firm. And so this is one of the things that we need to look at for ourselves. And it's interesting that the way Jesus appears, now in chapter 1 there's this image of Jesus Christ and it has all these different characteristics, one of them being he has this sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Um, and here at the beginning of this letter, that is the particular descriptive term of Jesus that's being used for that church. So you're, you know, all these churches read all these letters, but this one's particularly to you. So you get this letter, particularly to you, from Jesus Christ, and it says he is the one who has a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. So it's like, okay, the question then will be, is he for me or is he against me? Because if he's against me, that's not good, but if he's for me, he's going to fight against my enemies. So what is the deal, sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth? And so we go to, to Hebrews, to Hebrews chapter 4, and we'll just read verses 12 through 13. It's a very famous verse. Lots of people know this, but it's good to hear it in this context again. For the word of God, in this context is speaking about the Bible, the scriptures, the word of God, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, from God's sight, but are all naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And this goes back to the garden where they ate from the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, and they realized they were naked and they were ashamed because they had come under the judgment of God who would see these things. And they had no covering. They had nothing. So when you stand before God and he judges you by his word, and even when you go to his word, you will see um, how the word of God does penetrate into your being. It penetrates into your soul. But we have a covering. We have the blood of Jesus Christ. We have the Holy Spirit. We have knowing that while it does show us our sin, it shows us how far short we fall from the glory of God, it also tells us of our Savior so that we know we are not naked and exposed before God, but we are clothed in his righteousness. In the Garden of Eden, when they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, um, they realized they were naked. They tried to cover themselves with fig leaves, trying to produce their own righteousness to hide themselves from God. And God 
said that won't do. So he provided them with a covering. He covers them with the skin of an animal. So the only way you get the skin of an animal is by killing an animal. So that was a sacrifice pointing forward to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ where the blood that was spilled was spilled instead of them dying the day that they ate as it was the promise, the day you eat you shall die, there was a substitute. And that substitute represented Jesus Christ, blood was shed, they were covered with its skin to represent the fact that um, after Jesus Christ, the believer is covered in his righteousness. His blood is shed, we're covered in his righteousness. And then we're given his word to be able to stand before him and to hear what he has to say to us. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And what we're going to see is this is the heart of the matter in all of these churches. Particularly now as we get here to Pergamum. So they've had this person murdered by the state. The sword of the state has taken um, Antipas's life. And Jesus says in, in Luke 12, 4 through 7, you don't have to go there, I'll just read it. It says, um, do not fear those who kill the body and after have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear, this is Jesus speaking, fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. So it kind of takes a little turn there. It's like, okay, you know, don't, one, don't worry about people who can kill your body. All right, so Antipas would have known this. The church would have known this. So don't worry about Caesar and the state and this culture who can kill your body. They can't do anything to your soul. Fear the one who has the ability after you've been killed to throw you into hell. Then he says, but fear not. Because you are very valuable to God. And so as believers, we may, who knows what might happen. We live in a world that accidents happen. Uh, we live in a world where different parts of the world, you become a believer, you're immediately persecuted and can be killed. Even today, many more Christians are being killed today than any other time in the world. It, it can happen here. It can come here. And the question then for us will be, how will we stand? Will we believe these things? Will we, when faced with life or death, um, if it were, were to come to that over your faith, would you stand? And I think many of us probably would go, you know, yeah, I got to, we'll, we'll do that. You know, come at me, government. You know, I mean, we're all big on Facebook and stuff. You know, it's like, yeah, post this stuff. I'll share that thing. You know, I need to, and we'll speak up politically and we'll do all these kind of things and stuff. And it's like, that's all, whatever. But what the Bible teaches is that there's powers behind this and that our enemy is not flesh and blood. Their enemy are the powers, the principalities behind these powers. So if the church wants to be the true institution in the world that has the only ability to shine light on these things, then the solution is not government and politics. The solution is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The solution is the love of Christ. The solution is how do we be, how are we to be the light in the world? Remember, when he's writing the letter to the seven churches, he calls the seven churches candlesticks with light and Jesus is in the middle of those and then what he will say is if you do not change and you do not have your heart go after me I'll remove your candlestick so that the question is not are you going to stand up to 
um, government when it comes in to stop worship, which is something we should do. Um, it's not, are you going to, how hard are you, you know, how strict are you, how good are you at doctrinal purity? Because you need to be that too. But you can be those things in your heart far from God. And that's what the word of God is for. Piercing the heart. Discerning the intentions of the heart. But Antipas was killed. And the Greek word there for he was my witness, the word for witness is martyr. And so in some translations, they'll just keep that Greek word and say he was my martyr. But be aware that we've, we've begun using that word uh, to talk about Christians, believers who were killed because of their faith, because of their Christian witness. So when you see the word martyr, we understand that to mean somebody who gave their life or died because they would not deny the faith. But it actually means witness. And we're all called to be his witnesses. But we're not all necessarily called to die, but we are called to take up our cross and to not love our lives necessarily even unto death. But now we do have this death of Antipas, and it's noted in the Bible, his name is mentioned, um, it's noted by Christ, and he will be rewarded. He now has the crown of life. But the church in Pergamon had another problem. Because they'd stood up to that, and, and good for them. I mean, that was, that was really good. But they have another problem. Um, they were withstanding the attacks of culture and the government, but they were dying from within. So in Revelation 2, again, verses 14 and 15, the Spirit says, I have a few things against you. You have some that were holding to the teaching of Balaam, who taught that Balak, who taught Balak to put a stumbling, stone, stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some that hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. All right, so Balaam. Um, the Nicolaitans, as far as that goes, we don't really know who that is. It's hard to, they're also brought up with um, the Ephesians. But what it seems to be here is, is this teaching of some group is causing people within the church to go after the gods in the culture and to practice sexual immorality. It's following this teaching is basically the teaching of Balak. And you're like, all right, oh, Balaam, Balaam. So who's Balaam? So Balaam is a famous little story in the Old Testament. Uh, I hate to call it a story, but it's a story of a, a factual event. Um, Israel is in this, it's, it's uh, the 40 years of wanderings in the desert. They're coming up on um, Moab. And so as they get there, the king of Moab, Balak, he sees them. They're plentiful. He's seen what God has done through them, what that nation has done through other countries. And so he, call, he says, oh, we got to do something. This is not good. And so what he does is what a lot of people would do in that day. He went to a prophet and he said, hey, I need, I need a prophet. Then curse these people so that we can defeat them. So they go to this prophet, Balaam. And Balaam's not Jewish, but he does have some sort of contact with Yahweh, with the God of, of the Israelites. So he's using that as a means of making money and helping the king curse different people and things like this. So now here comes Israel. And the king goes to Balaam and he says, hey, I need you to curse Israel for me. And he's like, okay, I can do that. But God comes to him and says, don't you do it. And then the third time the king comes to him and the angel comes to Balaam, he says, all right, go with him, and I will tell you what to say. 
So he, he starts to go, and he obviously has a bad attitude about it. He's all excited about cursing Israel. And this is the story where you see he's on the donkey, and the donkey sees this angel of the Lord with this drawn sword before him. Balaam can't see it. The donkey keeps trying to avert, you know, he's, don't go. He's, he's hurting Balaam's leg, and then Balaam strikes the donkey, and the donkey speaks to him. And in the you know, King James, it's called an ass. And Martin Luther made the thing, make the statement that if at one time God could speak through the mouth of an ass, perhaps he can do it today through my preaching. So there's something to think about with that. But this donkey speaks to him and, and says, why have you struck me? He tells him what's going on. The angel of the Lord then appears to Balaam and says, do not come forward. It had not been for your donkey, I would have killed you and let the donkey go. Because basically telling him, you can't see spiritual things. You think you can, but you can't. And it's the angel of the Lord, which is most likely a pre-incarnate image of Jesus Christ. And he's standing there with a drawn sword. And he tells Balaam, you go, but you only speak what I tell you to speak. So, not to belabor this, the, the king tells Balaam, he says, go and curse. He says, I can't curse him. All I can do is bless him. If God's not going to curse them, I can't curse them. So he says, no, I need you to go and curse them. So he goes out. And, and sees the nation of Israel out there, and instead of cursing them, he blesses them. And the king's like, no, what I need you to do is, so he goes back again, second time, he says, curse them. So Balaam goes out there, and he, and he blesses them again. And the king's like, no, this is the opposite of what we want to have happen. I need you to go, and the third time he goes out there, and he blesses them again. He's done with it. But then, when we learn in different parts of the Bible what happens, and this is in Numbers 22 through 25, if you want to read about that. Um, but what we learn is, is that Balaam comes up with a, a different solution, and he tells the king, he says, I can't curse them because they're blessed of God, but use the Moabite women to infiltrate, to get in there. And so that's what happens. And the people begin to... Um, have relations with these women. They begin to uh, worship their gods. And through that, it says in Numbers that they begin to worship Baal of Peor, the Lord of Peor. They begin demon worshiping um, in the midst of all this. Could not be cursed from the outside because God's protecting them. But when the culture of the Moabites came in and the Israelites saw that, well, they of their own accord decided they're going to go after other gods. And God, in his anger, um, rebuked them, and 24,000 died of a plague as a result of that. And so what God is telling that church in Pergamum is, you're doing the same thing. You're doing the same thing. You did good. You're standing up to the government. Antipas murdered, and you kept the faith. But you're going after these women? You are eating foods sacrificed to the idols. You're worshiping them there. You, you have become like the culture. You are worshiping gods, and you've been baptized. You carry the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You bear the name of Christ, and you're out there worshiping other gods and fornicating and carrying on just like the rest of the world. You did good to stand up to Caesar, but... There's a rot happening on the inside because your heart's not with me. Your heart's with these other guides. You know, I mean, anybody, if you're, you know, you're an ideologue, you have something. This is what I stand for. This is what I want for some people. Man, it's the church. The government comes after it. Uh-uh, you don't come after the church and they'll stand all up for it. But then what are they like when they go home? 
You know, what are they like in their regular lives? Who are they worshiping? What are they worshiping? Where are their hearts? And that's the question for us. And even in Smyrna, the Ephesians, the Ephesian church was told, you have abandoned the love you had at first. They had doctrinal purity, but they had lost their first love. And so the question for the church is, yes, there will be lots of persecution. There are lots of problems in the world, and you may well stand up to them firmly. But what's happening to your heart, and who are you really worshiping? You can claim the name of Christ, but who has the claim on your heart? And this is what he's called to do, and it's called a stumbling block. And a stumbling block is pretty easy to understand. You're walking. You're doing good. You're down. You've fallen. Um, it's called sometimes a snare of Satan, captured to do his will. Satan prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking who he might devour. The thief, he's called, comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and have it fully. But it's where is your heart? And this is what he's calling us to. And you get to verse 16. Therefore, repent. Metanoia, change your mind, change your direction, turn from this and turn to that. It's not just somebody feels sorry about what they did. Lots of people, the world feels bad about doing bad things, but this is recognition of your sin before God and then recognition of the great uh, mercy and grace there is in Jesus Christ. That's what godly repentance is, not just feeling bad about what you did, and I mean, which is good, and telling people you're sorry, which is good, but that ends up not leading you to salvation. And so this is what he wants from them. He wants them to repent. And then he says this. It's interesting if you think about it. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. So if you think about this, you might say, well, you know what? It's not bad enough that Caesar's coming at them with the sword. Now you're talking about Jesus coming at them with the sword too. It's like, that's a bit harsh, don't you think? I mean, Caesar has killed one of them, and now Jesus is saying, you didn't see nothing yet. Wait till I come in. He's saying what Caesar has done is terrible and horrible, and you have done well to keep the faith. But you're in danger of hell. It's bad what Caesar can do to you, but you need to be concerned about what will happen to you if your heart turns from me and you've abandoned your only hope. You stand before God naked and ashamed, and you will be judged fairly. And we had to be careful. We've talked about this in the past. Be careful yelling out for justice, because what you want is mercy. What you need is grace. Justice before God is the standard is holy, absolute perfection, and we fall far short. Every single human being fall short of the glory of God. And the only solution is belief in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and trusting in him. Whosoever shall believe in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. But this is good news for the church that he will come in and war with them with the sword of his mouth. And it means with the word of God, too. So sometimes the word of God will do its work in a church. And that's what we had to pray for that as there are those of us, maybe it can be me, maybe it can be you, at some point we fall into this error. What we need to happen is the word of God to come in and, and do its work. For the believer, the sword of God brings you to life. And that's what we, we pray for as we go through these types of things as well. And in verse 17, it has this refrain that starts at the end of each of these letters. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this is not just a message to this particular church, 
although it is to that particular church. This is what the Spirit says to the churches. If you have ears to hear, you have spiritual ears to hear. He says, this is what I want you to hear. To the one who conquers. The word is Nike. It's where Nike gets his name from. The one who is victorious. To the victor. I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give to him a white stone with a new name on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So, to those who conquer, 1 John 5, 4 says this, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Now, if you care about such things, the word overcome is also the word nike. The word victory is nike. So to the one, for everyone who has been born of God, he's nikaio. He, he's a victor over the world. And what is that nikaio? What is that victory that has vikaio the world, that has overcome the world? Our faith. So the ones who make it through this are the ones who maintain their faith, their love for Christ, their love for God through these things. Now, you get the crown of life, is what was told to the church at Smyrna. To the church at Ephesus, what did it say? It says you will not be touched by, it says you will, uh, you have the tree of life in the paradise of God. So again, talking about the Garden of Eden. And so here, it's this hidden manna. And that's not hard to figure out what that means. Um, what was manna? And, you know, in, and it actually, I think literally it meant um, What's that? Or what is this? What's this stuff? <laughs> it's like the name of us. Man, what is it? And so it would fall down from heaven. It's how God fed the Israelites in the 40 years. They, were, they would have the manna that would fall, and they'd collect it, and they would eat it, and it tasted like honey in their mouth. And, so they, and there was always enough for the day. Um, on the Sabbath, the day before the Sabbath, you collected enough for two days, so, and it wouldn't go bad. But on other days, you didn't collect it. You just ate because you had to trust in the provision that God had for you every day. And this is what God's telling them. I have hidden manna. And it's interesting, it wasn't hidden. And there's a couple things for that. One, um, Aaron the priest took some of the manna, put it in a jar at God's command, and put it in the Ark of the Covenant. So there is, wherever the Ark of the Covenant is, there's a jar of manna in there. And so you can call it the hidden manna, and that can be what that means. Or it can also mean that it's, the world can't really see it. This is the believers, like Jesus went, Nicodemus went to Jesus and said, um, you know, what must I do to be saved? Says so you had to be born again. If you aren't born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. So in that sense, is a hidden manna. So Jesus says in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. And if you turn to the gospel of John chapter 6, it's the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John chapter 6. Where he specifically talks about, about the manna, and Jesus applies this to himself. So John chapter 6, verse 26. And so hear the gospel for the believer and, and what the Lord would have us to know here. John chapter 6, verse 26. Um, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you were seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. He had done the miracle of feeding the, the people and the 5,000 people, and now they were following him. And he says, do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. His, Son of Man is his designation for himself often. For on whom God the Father has set his seal. 
Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus then said to them, truly I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And then for the sake of time, we go to verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give his flesh to eat? And so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As a living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. So, you can see why, hearing this, a lot of the, the Greeks during the time after Christ didn't know what was going on in all the churches, although all they had to do was go in, is they believed that Christians were cannibals. It was one of the charges that went around about Christians was that they're eating some guy's flesh and drinking his blood. And you might say, that's crazy. Where did they get that from? Did you hear what he said? I mean, that's not hard to come away with it. But we understand he's talking about the hidden manna. He's talking about the bread of communion. He's talking about the wine of communion where Jesus says, this is my body given for you. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This is me. This is the gospel. This is the hidden manna. And then there has this white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. Lots of talk about what the white stone is. The best answer is, I don't know. I don't really know what it is. But I know this. Jesus gives it to you. It has a name written on it. And it's only the person that gets it knows what it is. That's the coolest thing. This is the coolest thing. Now it could be a name of Christ. Or it could be a name he gives to you. Either way, it's a name he gives to you. Now in Pergamum, there were, uh, the buildings were all this pink granite. It must have been, I don't know, I guess that's cool, if that's your thing. So it's like, maybe like Myrtle Beach or something. And it's this pink granite, they were, but they would find in the ruins these little white stones that had names on them. Some were bigger, some were larger. It didn't come from there. They had to bring it in from somewhere else, so it was valuable. 
And so it could be that to a church in Pergamum, they're like, hey, I'm going to give you a white stone. And it's going to have a name on it that nobody knows but you. Um, and there's lots of other things with the white stone. It could have been there was a, if you competed in an athletic um, competition um, and you won, you received a white stone that gave you admission into the, the banquet for the, the victors of a of a um, athletic contest. Well, that's cool. It's like, okay, you are the victor, so you get this white stone. Um, the high priest in the Old Testament, if he's using Old Testament analogies, they had these stones that had um, one for each of the tribes of Israel, and the, and the name of a tribe was written on it. And now he's going to give you a stone that's going to have your name written on it. You know, all these things are just really neat, but it's just, remember, white represents purity. I mean, it's very clear in Revelation that that's what it represents. But it's also interesting if you think about, it, why is it hidden man in a secret name? The gospel's proclaimed. You, you read Revelation, you get different names for Christ, you get all these things, but I think it has to do with intimacy with God. And this is what God is seeking with us, intimacy with us. You may fight against culture. You may fight for or against politics and all this stuff, Whatever. You may fight, you know, who knows where you are, what you're doing with your life in the world, and I hope it pleases Christ, and I hope you seek to please him in all things, and you do so prayerfully with love, you love your enemies, you speak truth in love, and, and all these things, but that's not where our hope is, that's not where our ultimate confidence is, because what he says is, you can do all the right, you know, if you have not love, it's 1 Corinthians 13, you know, love is faithful, love is kind, love is, I don't have that memorized, but, you know, <laughs> you read it all the time at weddings, he says, but if you have not love, you're a clanging gong. You can, you can give your life to the flames and have not love, and you've accomplished nothing. If you have not love. And it's not just my love, you know, like the Beatles singing about it. Love of Christ, love of God. You love for one another, love for your fellow man. That's what we're called to do. God wants our hearts, and he wants it all. And he gave himself completely for us. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the gift of your son, for the hidden manna. We thank you for this intimate knowledge you'll have. When we see you, you'll see us, and you'll know us intimately. There's intimacy of relationship, not just a God who sees the masses and, and waves and, and walks away, but one who looks us in the eye, looks us in the heart, and on the last day, hopefully we hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And there's an intimacy of a relationship unlike any we've even known on this earth. So help us now as we come to your table that we would be able to have a taste of, of that relationship even now. And we pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.